the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday. This is the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, 340-9585 for your live calls. That's 340-9585. If you're out of the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions at, by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of the free KSLR mobile app, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Well, for us here at Calvary Chapel, because it's Wednesday night, I get to teach Second Samuel chapter 3 tonight. It's a long chapter, but it's a good one. I love the history. Uh, of of First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, uh, there is so much uh, richness in there for those of us who New Testament Christians. I bring that up because somebody was talking today about not really being too into the Old Testament and only focus on the New Testament. Well, you're missing out. You're missing out because these are really, really rich Bible studies uh, throughout the historical books. Uh, one other. Um, scheduled event, of course, because tomorrow is Thursday. It'll be the date edition of the program. That means Paula will be live in studio with us as we uh, uh, are together once again. I think tomorrow we're going to talk about making your spouse your best friend or why you should and how you can. So uh, I know Paula's busy working it all together. So uh, let's get right to questions. We'd love to have your live phone calls. Um, my first question comes from Erica from our email inbox. And Erica says, when Jesus returns, what will happen to the Christians who survived the rapture? Do they go to heaven? And if so, how? Erica, I'm not quite sure what you mean by Christians. Now, you know, all of the Christians, the true true believers, are going to be raptured um, before the Great Tribulation. So uh, the rapture is our release. That's when we go to be with Jesus. And, and in the process, Paul says that we will all be changed. Uh, we will be given our glorified resurrected bodies. That's 1 Corinthians 15:51. We'll be given our glorified resurrected bodies. We'll be in heaven with Jesus for seven years, and then we'll come back with him. Now, there will be Christians who survived the Great Tribulation who weren't Christians at the time of the rapture. Again, I want to make this clear, Erica, that everybody who is a born-again Christian uh, in the whole world uh, will be taken up in the rapture. Uh, there are going to be a lot of people who are left behind uh, because they weren't believers, but many, many, many of those people will be saved uh, after the Great Tribulation begins because there's going to be a, a really effective witness, uh, 144,000 Jewish evangelists. We're going to see Moses and Elijah who are witnesses. 
of the glory of God and the coming uh, of, of the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. So the people who are in flesh and blood bodies who survived the Great Tribulation, um, after the Great Tribulation, they will be given glorified resurrected bodies as well, and then they will rule and reign together uh, on the earth. So um, that's what will happen to them, but, but again, not surviving the rapture, but surviving the Great Tribulation. Thank you very much, Erica. Good question. Here is a question from our mobile app from Nestor. Um, nice name, Nestor. I haven't heard that one before. If God is all-knowing and he knows all events before they happen within our time constraints, why did he still create Lucifer knowing he would rebel? You know, Nestor, God created lots of things. He created uh, all of the angels, one-third of them fell. God knew that was going to happen as well. Um, but he uses those, um, the devil is called his servant in the Bible, not that the devil wants to serve him, but the devil has no choice. Um, the, the fallen angels will be used um, to, to, to serve God's ultimate purpose, uh, all the while trying to upset the plan of God. Um, why didn't God um, refuse to create them? Well, God creates lots of things that are beautiful. You know, Lucifer was the most beautiful of all God's creations. And he blew it. God gave him a chance. He blew it. Now, I think the better question, Nestor, is, is why did God create, and I'll just use you as an example. I don't know you, so again, nothing personal. But why did God create you knowing that you were going to rebel against him? I mean, if we sin willfully, we're rebelling against God. God didn't rue the day that he created us. So God creates the just and the unjust. He blesses the just and the unjust. And somehow in his marvelous sovereign power, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And no matter who is opposing God, God's will will not be resisted ultimately. I think sometimes we have a tendency to think it's about us, but remember, God's will is one thing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's going to happen one day. Until that day, Nestor, we're all free moral agents. And when we look over the, the, the course of history and even before history, when we talk about the, the creation of, of, of Lucifer and the other angels who fell, uh, God wasn't surprised by anything. God wasn't surprised that Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree. Uh, but he created us all still because it delighted him to do so. And somehow it'll all fit into his plan. That is real sovereign power. So yes, he is all-knowing. I think the crux of the question is, well, I wouldn't uh, create somebody that I knew was going to be a murderer, that I knew was going to be a thief. Um, Jesus said Satan is all those things. Um, but remember, you're not God. And God simply uses even that which resists and rebels against him to accomplish his purpose. And again, I know this is redundant, but it's very important. God's ultimate purpose is one thing and one thing only. And that's to bring Jesus back to rule and reign on this earth as it was always God's intent that he would. 340-9585. Jennifer wants to know if you can lose your salvation. Jennifer, I always answer this question at least first by saying, I don't want to. So uh, I, I think I understand your question, but, but this isn't the question that we ought to be asking. The question that we ought to be asking is, is somebody really saved? So uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says that we were given, all of us, God's Holy Spirit as a seal, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So if we really belong to Jesus, if we ever really did, we always will. doesn't mean that we'll be perfect. It doesn't mean that we won't what we call backslide. But it means that if you really have, have asked Jesus into your heart, well, then, well, Jesus said, I've lost none that you've given me, Father. So we have to understand that, 
So salvation isn't something that, that God gives us and tricks us and takes it back. That's really, really important. Um, the problem, Jennifer, is that we see people who say they're saved and they're not acting like they're saved. And we think, well, if they were saved, they lost their salvation. No, they never really were saved. See, here's one of the keys uh, about the, the, the heart of the man or the woman um, who's really saved. Their lives are transformed. There's a lot of people who haven't had any transformation at all. They've acknowledged the facts of the gospel, but they haven't accepted them and made them their own. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says they went out from us to prove they were never really part of us. Now, John wrote that in his old age. Imagine how many people he'd seen who seemed to be believers, but later walked away. Paul tells a story about Demas, even Demas, for he loved the things of this world and deserted me. Even Demas, who's described as a loyal yoke fellow, that was Paul's perception of him. And yet he too walked away. So losing your salvation is not an option. If God is the one who guarantees it. Now, if I guaranteed your salvation, Jennifer, you'd be in trouble because I have no authority to guarantee anybody's salvation. But because the guarantee is given to us by God himself, it is impossible, Im- utterly impossible to imagine that God wouldn't be able to make good on his promise. He who began a good work in us, Jennifer, will be faithful to complete it. We're told he is the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. So here's what we have to do. We have to be honest about people who say they're Christians who aren't living like Christians. If somebody says they're a Christian but their life is lived decidedly in an ungodly fashion, well, then what you do is you simply understand that that's somebody who doesn't know Jesus. That's not judging their soul. We're not judging their heart. We're just saying that based on the evidence I see, this is a person who doesn't know Jesus. Let me make it a little harder for you, Jennifer. Jesus says if you forgive those who have sinned against you, he'll forgive you. But if you don't forgive them, you're not forgiven. Now, we justify all the time holding on to unforgiveness, don't we? Somebody did me wrong. They really hurt me. They betrayed me. And so we hold on to unforgiveness all the time. Now, that doesn't mean you're disqualified from salvation. It just means that you're breaking the heart of God and there's not going to be fruit coming from your life. Not for you, Jennifer, but for everybody else out there. We need to stop trying to figure out if somebody means what they say when they say they're saved. Instead, just look at their lives. Many, many, many times over the years, somebody who I knew was living in willful sin would say, well, I'm a Christian. And I would say, well, what makes you think so? Well, I was baptized. I I answered an invitation. None of that matters. It's a transformed heart that proves the genuineness of a conversion. And if we don't understand that, then we really don't understand Jesus at all. If we think that all we have to do is say a prayer or say I believe or confess it with our mouth and then we can live any way we want, we don't know Jesus. And so a lot of people out there who you think or others think have lost their salvation. Truth is, they never really had it. One other comment, and this one is for you, Jennifer. You can go to Matthew chapter 13 and read Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the sower. I think that parable explains a whole bunch of what we see, people who profess to be Christians who really aren't at all. But no, Jesus said in the Gospel of John that I have you in my hand and no one can pluck you out of my hand and The Father, who's greater than I, has you in his hand, and no one can snatch you out of his hands either. So we're pretty safe and secure. If we ever really were saved, we always are and will be saved. Thank you very much. Here is a question from Jerry that uh, I don't really... um, I'm not going to satisfy you, Jerry. Do you have a list of Christian bloggers that are good to read? Uh, I don't. 
um, Jerry, I, I sometimes get sent links, and, and I, I understand what Christian blogging is all about, but, um, you know, the time that we spend reading uh, Christian, so-called Christian sources, um, that ought to be time that we spend in our Bibles. I don't know why a Christian would ever spend an hour reading a Christian blog. Who cares what somebody else thinks? When Jesus has written what we think, when Jesus has told us what he thinks, so this is really important. Discipline yourself. Um, Somebody else's opinion on something matters nothing at all to me. What matters is what the Word of God says, what it means, and how we can use it. So I don't have a list of Christian bloggers. You know, many who are so-called Christian bloggers um, have denied the veracity of God's Word. Um, They're advancing other agendas, feminist agendas. Right now, the hottest thing in the blogosphere is Uh, women who are writing for an egalitarian view which demonstrates they don't know the Word of God, period. They don't care what the Word says. Why would we spend any time reading that? So no, I don't, I really don't have a list of Christian bloggers that are good to read. I I can't recommend anybody at all. Uh, I, again, occasionally get links to things. Somebody wants me to comment on an article or something and I do that. But for the most part, Um, We need to spend our time in the Word. Here is a question from Anne. She says, Can a person be born again through infant baptism? Uh, Anne, this has been an argument that the professing church has had from the very beginning. The answer is no. Uh, And yet church traditions often hold uh, just the opposite, whether it's Catholic Church or Lutheran Church or Church of Christ or some others, um, they, they, they hold that if you get baptized as an infant, you're in. That baptism somehow deals with the, the, the doctrinal truth of original sin, that we're all born condemned, we're all born into sin, and yet as a baby with no choice of our own, we, we go through the, the, the ritual of infant baptism and suddenly we're in and nothing will ever change that. But we know that's not true. Because to come to Jesus, you have to make that choice. A parent can't make that choice for you. So no, a person cannot be born again through infant baptism. There is a time when that child, he or she, is eventually going to have to make a decision about who Jesus is in their life. Is he the Lord? Or is he just some historical figure, some religious figure? And infant baptism doesn't change that. It is frustrating, and for me as a pastor... Because um, I deal with, especially coming from a city that's majority Catholic and those who profess Christ, uh, it's frustrating because we've got murderers who make confession, we've got murderers who are baptized in the church, and we got moms and grandmas holding on to the hope that that baptism somehow saves them. We 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 simply aren't being intellectually or spiritually honest. And to to even suggest that uh, somebody who had no choice in the matter can somehow avoid an eternity in condemnation simply because their parents had them baptized as an infant is to misunderstand the whole of the teaching of the Bible, Old Testament and New. So, no, it's just not enough. We've got to make our own decisions, and we've got to do it of our own free will. Whatever the age of accountability is, it's different for different people. It's time for us to make a decision. For me, Anne, I was almost 40 years old when I made that choice. Now, I knew I wasn't saved, didn't even want to be saved. But once I made that choice, I was instantly His forever that was in fact uh, tomorrow's February so next month in February will be 27 years for me 
and I couldn't wait to get baptized. In fact, and I, um, I really thought about this. You know, I, I, I said on the program yesterday, I had no religious baggage. I had no um, connections in the church. I didn't have anything I had to unlearn. Um, but just, just reading the Bible, I wanted to be baptized. And I couldn't imagine anybody who was better to do it than Paula. She's the one who prayed for me for 13 years. She's the one who made Jesus real for me. And um, I asked her to baptize me, and she, I, I still remember the look on her face. She was thinking, I don't want to mess up. But she waited for me for a long time, and uh, I just think we did it at a gym in a pool, uh, and uh, I think the Lord was just really, really, really pleased um, at that. So, and I hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We'd love your live phone calls. You're more interesting than I am. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Donald. He says, "Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers?" Now, if you mean here in the sense answered, the the the, the answer to that question is no. Um, you know, God can hear everything. God is God. He's all powerful, and so it's not like he's got his fingers in his ears. It's just that there's no relationship. You know, it's sort of like um, um, going to uh, a gated community. Uh, you can know the people inside. You you can know about them. But unless they've given you the access code to the gate, you're not going to get in. Well, the same thing is true here. There's an access code to the gates of heaven. And that access code is Jesus. He is the the one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus who died to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And suddenly, we're connected when we believe Jesus, when we're born again. And we have access and our prayers are heard. Now, it's not at all unusual, Donald, to hear unbelievers say, well, I pray all the time. I know I'm okay with God. Um... But see, it's a God of their own making. So whoever and whatever they're talking to, it isn't God. They can't pray Jesus' model for prayer, our Father, which art in heaven, because they can't say, you're my Father. But when Jesus comes into our heart, we're given, according to the Apostle Paul, the spirit of sonship by which we can call him Abba, Father. In essence, we would say we're adopted into the family. And that gives us access. We can go to our dad in heaven anytime. We can go and talk to Jesus anytime. We've got the spirit of God living in us. And we have all the access we need. You see, in order for God to hear prayers, there has to be access. And if God physically hears a prayer. He can't respond as though he hears that prayer because he doesn't know the person who's approaching. You know, in Christianity, Donald, it's not what you know, it's who you know. We're never saved by what we know unless what we know leads to the who, and the who is Jesus, of course. So that's the best thing about being born again instantly you know, I, I go back again to my 27-year-old experience now. And and it's amazing because I was shouting at God. I was mad at God. I was yelling at God. Why didn't you let me win that bet? Why is this going on? Why is this happening? It's not fair, God. And literally shaking my fist at him. And then in an instant, all that changed when I surrendered my heart to him. And suddenly, Jesus was right there and my prayers could be heard. The only prayer, Donald, I hope this doesn't sound like a contradiction, the only prayer God can hear from the lips or the heart of an unbeliever is, Lord, save me a sinner. That's the prayer he delights to hear. That's the only prayer he wants to hear from unbelievers. Because it's the only way that we can be part of the family. So Donald, hope that helps. 
how are we doing on time here? Got two minutes. Okay, let me do a quick question at the end. I've had this question a long time. Don't know why I haven't answered it. It's an anonymous question. A friend in Arizona told me he was going to Mark Driscoll's church. Can you tell me if I should warn him, or is Driscoll okay? Uh, anonymous Driscoll has all kinds of baggage and problems. First, he is reformed, um, um, but but that's the least of his his issues. Um, um, he was the founder of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. The church folded. Um, people were abused, and I don't mean physically abused, but they were spiritually abused. And um, he, he was one that had a whole bunch of called survivors uh, kind of team up and start sharing their horror stories. And basically, he was run out of Seattle in shame. Uh, he is a charismatic uh, guy. He a uh, uh, gifted communicator. Um, but uh, I, 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 would, I would warn my friend to stay away. We have 30 minutes left in the program. No calls. Our phones are quiet. We'd love to have them. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Wednesday show. Uh, I just We just got an anonymous call from the, or, or into the studio, uh, and and uh, the question is, Pastor Ron explain more about God not hearing the prayer from a non-believer. I, I really don't know how much more I can explain. I spent a long time on it. Uh, it. It's simply a matter of access. You know, if somebody comes to your door and knocks on your door and they look like they're really threatening, you've got the door bolted and locked, you're not going to hear it. You're not going to open. You're not going to invite them in. Why? Because you don't know them. If you go to the bank and you try to withdraw money from an account that's not yours because you don't have the code numbers, you're not going to get any money. Well, the same thing is true um, with with unbelievers. You know, uh, as an unbeliever, Anonymous, I what I called prayed all the time. I was talking to God. I was yelling at God. I was trying to make bargains with God. And fortunately, God chose not to hear all those prayers uh, because he knew that I was going to come to him. But answering prayer requires access to God. And there's simply no access that an unbeliever has. Now, when that unbeliever is ready to be transformed, Lord, save me a sinner. Instantly access is granted because that's what God's purpose, his will is from the beginning. He wants to answer our prayers. He wants to hear us. He wants to have a relationship with us. But as long as we're living in willful or unrepentant sin, then he can't hear our prayers. Now, let me take this one step further, because Anonymous, the same thing is true for real believers who are engaged in willful sin and are not repentant. The fellowship is broken off. We can talk to God all we want. We can pretend, well, I know I'm saved. God, help me do, help me with this. Or He can't hear those prayers. Why? Because sin has separated us from God. And all we have to do is repent. 1 John 1, 9 says if we do that, if we confess our sins, that's to agree with God about sin, our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us and restore us by purifying us from all unrighteousness. So access again granted instantly. But an unbeliever who thinks that he or she is talking to God or praying or has a relationship, I used to tell people, well, I'm a spiritual person. and you know, I've got my deal worked out with God kind of thing in my arrogance. But the honest truth is there wasn't anything that God could hear from me, nor is there anything he wanted to hear from me beyond, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I don't want to do it anymore. And instantly for me that day, nearly now 27 years ago, on a public street in Dublin, California, I got on my face and God picked me up. He was right there. That was access granted. 
So it's all about access. Here is a caller named Joe who called in uh, also to the studio. What are some good scriptures to use when witnessing to non-believers? All of them, any of them. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's sort of the, the, the nuclear bomb of passages for unbelievers. So just God loves you. You know, you don't have to have scriptures to show. That's that's obviously a great one. But you, you don't have to have scriptures to throw at people. You, you just have to tell them what Jesus has done for you. Tell them that because he's done it for you, he wants to do it for them. And share with them how they can be forgiven. Now, most of the time, Joe, you're going to find that the problem isn't at all that people don't understand. It's that they don't want to stop sinning. So when you're witnessing to non-believers, uh, I think it, it's, it's um, uh, unless it's somebody that you know well and they know who you are, I think the worst place to start is just throwing scriptures at them. They don't believe in the scriptures. So I think what you do instead is tell them the message about Jesus. Declare the gospel. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul gives his testimony three different occasions and I'm sure there were many, many more times that he actually did it, but we have three different times recorded. You see, when you tell somebody what God's done for you, you're an expert on that. Now, if it's somebody that you know, somebody who knows you well, it's even easier. You say, you know what a jerk I was. Well, I'm not that person anymore. Why? Because I met Jesus, and he offered to forgive me of my sins, and I took him up on the offer. It was the best decision I ever made. But remember, unbelievers, by definition, don't accept the written scriptures. So what we have is a testimony. What we have is the word of God, the gospel of grace. And I remember for me personally, Joe, in the six months before I got saved, it was like Jesus sort of surrounded me. He hemmed me in with Christians. I'd hire people to work for me. And, and I didn't know they were a Christian, and they'd show up to work with a Bible in their hand. And, 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 and there was just light all around me. And constantly those people were reminding me that God loved me. I would see the joy in their lives and wonder where it came from. And I'd ask some of them, well, you know, I, I didn't used to have this joy, and then I met Jesus. And I was still in that rebelling stage. I didn't want to hear any of those things. But I couldn't avoid them. And if somebody started peppering me with Bible verses, I would have just laughed at them simply because how could you believe that Bible is the Word of God? It's a book written by men. But I couldn't deny what I saw in their lives. And when they would tell me that Jesus loves me, and they would even say something as mundane as he has a great plan for your life and by the way he does I didn't want his plan for my life because I wanted my own but the Holy Spirit kept using those statements to knock on the door of my heart and eventually I opened it because it just seemed so obvious finally and he was right there So, Joe, tell them God loves them, John 3.16. But most of all, tell them what God has done for you. I mentioned this in the program yesterday, but I was asked a question early yesterday. Somebody said to me, what's the biggest difference in your life since you met Jesus? And it's a hard question to answer only because the difference is indescribable. I was a different person. I met Jesus. I'm a new person. And because I met Jesus and because I'm a new person, I have a new outlook. People who only tolerated me because I made them money. Suddenly I was surrounded by people who actually cared about me. And I I learned soon that they actually loved me. For a guy like me who was a jerk, that's really, really a hard thing to understand. How can you say you love me? All I needed to do was be reminded that God loved me, that he was out there and he was waiting for me. 
So maybe, Joe, we don't try to make a formula. Instead, we just talk to people about Jesus and what he's done, who he is and what he's done. And if they don't want to hear, that's fine. You've planted the seed. The Holy Spirit will keep knocking on the door of that heart. But you'll be amazed how many times somebody will say, can you tell me more? What do I have to do to get this Jesus? So, Joe, make it a conversation. If you want a, an interesting experience, Joe, I don't know where in San Antonio you are, you're calling from, but on February 3rd, we're resuming our um, street witnessing ministry, and we've got a, a bunch of people to go out down in the Alamo Plaza area, uh, and they'll be sharing Jesus. Um, be great for you to show up, just kind of hang out with them, watch what they do. Uh, they're gifted by God to do it. You'll find that nobody gets mad at them. They're not offensive or aggressive. It's a very conversational form of evangelism, and it works very, very well. So, Joe, thank you for the call. Let's go to San Antonio now. Shirley on line one. Shirley, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah. I'm, uh, can you tell me where I can find in the scripture where they put John the Beloved in in, in the heart all? Yeah. Okay, I surely there's there's no story in scripture. Those stories, the traditions of the church are um are are gathered from um early writings, um people that have endeavored to take uh, John's story, uh but not it's not in the Bible. So when we say those things, uh, what we're doing is we're relying on secular sources or extra-biblical sources, and we always have to take those with a grain of salt because we don't know what the element of truth is. And the story is, of course, that uh, John the Beloved um, uh, was was uh, going to be executed. Uh, they told him uh, all he had to do is recant his faith in Jesus Christ, uh, and he refused to do that, of course. And so they put him in hot oil, and they especially wanted to torment him and boil him alive. And it was like a warm bath to him. Um, but those come from the early church fathers and some of the writings. Um, there are also some secular history sources, but it is not a biblical story. And we always, as I said, have to be careful to make sure that we let people know that, that this isn't what the Bible says happened, but this is the information that's been gathered from extra-biblical sources. Whether it's true or not, we don't know for sure, um, but likely because of the amount of witnesses, uh, there is some truth to those stories. Does that help you? Okay, thank you. Okay, Shirley, thank you. You know, that's a good point that uh, Shirley is making. You know, we have to be very careful um, to to be genuine in the things that we say. You know, there's all kinds of uh, stories. People hear a pastor say something, um, but there's no support, um, definitive support for the statement. Now, it's not necessarily wrong, but um, we can't teach it or tell it as truth. So we have to be very careful so we don't lose credibility. If, if we were to say something because we heard somebody else say something, uh, like the story of John being boiled alive, or at least they tried to boil him alive, um, and, and somebody said, well, you know, I found no secular re references to that, uh, and we couldn't produce it, we would lose credibility. So we just have to rightly represent the things that we're saying. When I'm teaching, Shirley, and to everybody else in the audience, uh, I will say early church legend has it that, but but I'm always careful to say, but we don't know for sure. We just don't know for sure that it's true. The only one that we, we know for sure is true, every word of it is, is what's been preserved for us in Scripture. Um, we have people who speculate on the, the, the Jesus as a baby, Jesus in his years up to the age of 12, and then Jesus after he appears in the scriptures at 12, and then he goes silent again for another 18 or so years. Um, people come up with all kinds of, of stories about what happened in those days. We don't know, and we have to be um, careful not to damage our integrity. 
um, when we're telling stories. Make sure that you have source material, um, that what you're saying is actually fact. 340-9585, here is a question from Oliver. He says, if we cannot lose our salvation, why does Revelation say that Jesus blots out names from the book of life? Oliver, this is one of those times when you have to read very carefully. We're talking about Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, and it does not say what you just said that it said. It doesn't say Jesus blots names out. It says... Uh, those who overcome, it's an overcomer's promise, I will never blot out your name from the book of life. And that's a huge difference. Now, what we do is we make the logical assumption that if he assures somebody that, that their name will be never blotted out, then it necessarily means that somebody else's name is being blotted out. That's simply not true. A scripture, that should give us more security than almost any other scripture in, in in the Bible. You know, it means we mess up. Jesus doesn't get an eraser and take our name out of the book of life. So it doesn't say that he does. It says that if your name is in there, Oliver, it's going to stay in there. He'll never blot it out. So that's just careful reading. So when you study your Bibles, don't presume things. Don't jump to, to what we consider to be logical conclusions. You know, um, people will say that uh, the idea of uh, election or predestination, God chooses those who are going to go to heaven. And some will say, okay, well, that means he has to choose those who aren't going to heaven either. So you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out kind of thing. And that's not what it says at all. It just says, yes, if you're going to heaven, you were chosen by God. The basis of that choice is foreknowledge. He knew that you were going to respond to his invitation to become family. And so he chose you. If somebody isn't chosen by God, it's because they wouldn't be chosen by God. I think too often we try to make things so simple that we miss the whole point. But Jesus will never blot our name out from the book of life. It is one of the greatest passages of eternal security in all of Scripture, Oliver. Hope that helps you. 340-9585. Steve wants to know, what happens when a Christian refuses to repent of sin? Well, I'd like to be naive here and say, well, real Christians can't refuse to repent, but we know Christians that do. We know Christians who are barely going to get into heaven. We know Christians, real believers, who walked with the Lord, then fell away, and sin hardens their heart, and they refuse to repent. Well, I'll tell you what happens to them. Their life is miserable. They're going to get to heaven? if they're really born again. But God loves them so much, He's going to make things miserable. Nothing is going to work out. You can't resist God and not expect to have pain. We're in our study, I said earlier at the top of the program, in Second Samuel chapter 3 tonight, and we're going to see David in sin, refusing to repent of sin, and he is going to pay for this sin literally for the rest of his life. His children are going to hate him. They're going to betray him. They're going to embarrass or shame him. And the sword is never going to depart from his house because of the choices he made. It's interesting to me that so many Christians, I mean, giants of our faith, were horrible parents. David evidently was not only a horrible parent, but he was a horrible husband. He couldn't commit himself to one woman. And the rest of his life, Steve is going to be filled with pain. That's why I try to communicate to the people here at Calvary Chapel. When they are in sin, they're in danger. The enemy is going to mess with them, and God can't protect them if they refuse to repent of their sin. And every time we say no to the Lord, every time we refuse to repent... It becomes easier to say no to him the next time. That's really, really, really important. So, Steve, pain is what's going to happen. Let's go to Bill calling from San Antonio. Bill, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, hello, Ron. Good afternoon. Uh, love listening to your show and uh, love how you and your wife serve and what you got going on at your church for serving, serving leadership. Uh, Thank you, Bill. 
I've got a question served in a lot of churches down in the Lavernia area. I have many friends and uh, uh, down in the area, but also teach uh, youth and sometimes adults Sunday school uh, when needed and serve wherever I'm needed. But this one saved, always saved that we've been talking about, and it was, well, maybe they weren't really saved to begin with. <clears throat> it's uh, hard for an outsider, I, I say outsider, to, to grasp that aspect, especially when, how do you answer most of the, the ones who have served so faithfully and on fire for God for so long and an event happened and turned them around and they just gone and completely uh, denied pretty much uh, what they're teaching and what their beliefs have been for so long. And so if you can expound on that a little bit to help me as I describe it in the right words, maybe as you uh, I'll hang up here and listen to you there, sir. Thank you, Bill. God bless you. I appreciate your kind kind words, too. Uh, Bill, we actually get this a lot. Um, uh, people will say, well, I'm saved. And, and as I mentioned uh, to an earlier question, that I often will tell somebody, well, how would I know, looking at your life, how would I know that you're saved? What would make me think that you're saved? Um, a lot of people will will say yes to the Lord. Uh, they have an emotional moment. Um, the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, uh, the foundational parable, by the way, Jesus said that a lot of times when the, the, the seed uh, hits shallow soil, it springs up at once. There's great joy, um, but later it gets choked out because of the cares of this world or worries of this world. Um, others say, well, it had no root because it just was an emotional moment would be my, my definition of it. Um, and so, so, yeah, there might have been a little bit of fruit that showed at the beginning. Um, but remember, the fruit of being saved, Bill, is transformed lives. And so when somebody, using the description that you just gave, somebody serves for the Lord, they get really passionate about the Lord, and they're telling everybody about Jesus, and then something happens, and they turn away from Jesus, they turn away from the church, they turn away from Jesus, uh, well, that just demonstrates where their heart has always been. I have a pastor friend who is no longer pastoring because of grave sin. And what, and among other things, what soured him was, well, nobody's grateful for what I'm doing. You know, people argue, they tell lies, they, they, they're, they're out to get me. Well, he just proved that all of his years as a pastor, he wasn't doing it for Jesus, he was doing it for him. And when he was disappointed... He ran. He showed his true colors. Again, First John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were never a part of us. Think about something, Bill. This is really important. Um, Peter and John in their epistles make reference to the impact that Judas's betrayal had on their lives. And it was like them. How could we have not have known? We thought Judas was one of us. Uh, it, it, it's something that bothered them for the rest of their lives as evidenced in their writings. That's why John concluded, well, he went out from us because he was never part of us. Had me fooled. So you see, we're not saved by good works. A transformed lives is what is the proof that we're saved. And Jesus never stops working. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't backslide and we don't go through rough patches, but a real believer will always return. And what I would tell somebody like that, Bill, is, you know, I'm sorry that you've fallen away from the Lord. I'm sorry that you no longer believe, but I'm going to be praying that like the prodigal son, you'll come to your own mind, you'll come to your right mind and return to Jesus. And use that as an opportunity to evangelize. Bill, thanks very, very much. We've only got, uh, we're in less than three minutes now. We have an anonymous call into the studio again. Can God tell you something that later changes mind? The answer is no. Um, God doesn't change. God's foreknowledge is perfect. Um, what happens, anonymous, is that God tells us to do something. It doesn't turn out the way we thought it would or the way we hoped it would. And, and we sort of end up disappointed. And so then we listen to the lies of the enemy and 
well, God doesn't want me to do this anymore, so he changed him. I'm going to do this now. He never does that. And this, by the way, is one of the problems that wives have in submitting to the leadership of their husbands. Their husbands are famous. We men are famous for saying, God told me this. God did this. We get all excited. It doesn't work out. And then we change our mind. And because we don't want to say, well, I just blew it, we, we just try to spiritualize it. Well, God changed my mind. I'll give you a perfect example, anonymous, of, of this. We had somebody who come to the church. Uh, we've had this many times, by the way. Uh, and, and we'll say, well, God sent me here. I've been listening to you on the radio, Pastor On, and, and God sent me here. This is where he wants me to stay, and this is where he wants me to serve, and this is where he wants me to grow in my faith. And, and then when things get hard, they leave. If I get a chance to talk to him and say, wait a minute, you said God said, yeah, but you know, I'm in a different season of my life now. We'll, we'll over-spiritualize it. Um, we're just kidding ourselves. So when God tells you something, you need to obey it. You need to do it, and you need to stick to it. Because it's not God that changes mind. When somebody says this, anonymous, it's because they changed their mind. Remember 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. That requires testing. And if we don't pass the test, it's not God who changes. We're the ones who change. So never forget that. God doesn't lie. He doesn't trick us. He wants to bless us. Thanks for the calls today. I appreciate it, Bill. Again, thanks for the kind words. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. If you're interested, we've got a really interesting study tonight, calvaryessay.com. You can uh, watch it online, live stream. You can join us. Wednesday night's not big crowds. We've got room. We'd love to have you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back tomorrow with Paul on the date day show tomorrow. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.